Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate it. Good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, we are launching into a new series that we're going to be in throughout the Lenten season. If, If you're not familiar with Lent, it's just a season in the church that leads up to Easter. It's 40 days where we prepare ourselves and anticipate this giant celebration of Jesus' victory over sin and death as he conquers the grave. And so um, during this season, we're going to be in this series called Overthrown. And we're talking about what are the other things that God wants to overthrow in our lives? Things that hold us back from being the people he longs for us to be and living the lives that he longs for us to live. He, he doesn't want anything to hold us back. And so today we're talking about one of those things that God overthrows. And today we're talking about fear. Now I promise you that This is just evidence that God is leading our church because when we planned this series many months ago and this week's topic was fear, I had not even heard of the coronavirus. So um, God is just good and he just knows what we need even before we know that we need it. So today we're talking about fear. Uh, I want to just acknowledge a couple things about fear as we dive in. First of all, fear is a universal human condition. There's not a person in this room who hasn't dealt with and won't deal with fear on some level. It's just something all of us face in this fallen world. Questions of fear like, will I succeed or will I fail? Will I be safe or will danger win? Will I have a life of security or turmoil? Will pain and suffering be a part of my reality and rear its head in my life in a way that is hard to handle You see, every one of us deals with fear, and so it's good to just think about where fear is part of our existence, where fear has has gotten into our lives and souls. And fear, again, isn't always bad. There are things that we should be afraid of. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's just, first of all, do a quick confession of fear. And you don't have to raise your hand if if these apply to you. Maybe just in your heart. Raise your hand in your heart, in your mind. Um, But have you ever felt the fear that you're aging? You've just seen it in the mirror, and it's just a painful thing and just scares you all of a sudden. Have you ever had fears related to money, that you just have too much of it? No. Uh, ever had fears about acceptance? You know, you think those are going to go away after high school, and yet they continue on into adulthood. That's good news for you high schoolers. Uh, ever feared that you were going to be turned down for a job? Or been afraid of that review that's coming up with your supervisor? Ever been afraid that your children were going to grow up and leave your home? Ever feared that day? Ever been afraid that your children were going to grow up and not leave your home? (laughs) Some of you are like, nope. And some of you are like, too soon, Pastor Dave. Uh, Ever been afraid of being in a hard relationship and that? Things just aren't going to change. Ever been afraid of looking foolish? It seems silly, doesn't it? And yet, that terrifies us. Ever been afraid of failure or success or inadequacy or rejection or a task that's ahead of you that just feels too big for you to handle? Ever been afraid of disappointing God? Yeah, there's a lot of things in our world to be afraid of. And Again, I want to say fear is not always a bad thing. 
Actually, fear is designed to be a good thing. It's designed as a protective response. It's there to alert us that something is not right, that something is wrong in this world. It's meant to motivate us to take action, to fix what is wrong, and to solve problems in our world. Fear is a great motivator, and God can use it in wonderful ways in our lives. I remember that um, I was a senior in college. I had a senior project to do. I majored in physics, and so the entire physics department had to do these senior projects, and we would present our project in front of not only our physics department, but the the physics department of two other colleges in the area. We'd all come together, and there would be like this battle of the physics nerd projects presentations thing happening. And I had, for some reason, picked this senior project where I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning, climb onto the roof of the science building, and measure, like, sunlight rays from, like, dawn, like, when the sun first came up. And, by, by the way, I went to school in Nebraska, where it was, like, minus 10. And so I had, you know, strategically put off this project for many, many weeks and months until finally the only thing getting me out of bed was sheer fear that I would not complete the project and I'd be standing in front of all these other students at the end and not have it done. But fear got me out of bed, just alone. It motivated me to make a good change and get my project done and graduate, which is good for all of us. But fear can be a good thing. It can move us in directions that God wants to move us, but it can also immobilize us. It can also be a really not good thing. Instead of enabling us and empowering us, fear can paralyze us. Researchers find that fear is a really good thing, and they they use the analogy of it can be like a thunderstorm. It moves into your life, and, and the lightning flashes, and the thunder booms, and it moves things along and changes things, and then the sun comes out again. That's good fear, but bad fear is like a cold cloudy drizzle that goes on day after day without end. Can anyone relate? Um, Fake out February is over, people. Um, Every year it gets me. Anyway, that kind of fear is not a good thing, the kind of fear that just stays with us. In fact, when the Israelites were camped right on the edge of the Jordan River, just on the edge of going into the Promised Land, many of them were paralyzed by fear. Fear of the people who lived in the land. God was saying, go into the land, take the land. I have something great for you. But fear kept them put. And finally, Caleb, one of the nation's leaders, says to the people, do not rebel against the Lord and be afraid of these people. In other words, sometimes, sometimes when we let fear prevent us from moving in places and in ways where God is calling us, fear is equated to rebellion against God. God says it can really be a harmful thing to us growing in faith. And so this morning, I want to talk about how do we find victory? How do we find peace in the midst of fear that just wants to settle in on our lives, that wants to hold us back and prevent us from moving forward and becoming the people God wants us to be? If you have a Bible, you can grab one and turn it to Psalm chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, we're going to be on page 432. In this psalm, David is talking with the Lord. It's actually a prayer that he prays. He's near the end of his life. Things have not gone well. In fact, in this moment, David's 
own son, Absalom, has risen up and started a coup against him. He's, he's decided to take the throne from, from David, from his own father. He's declared himself to be king, and David is now a fugitive. He's had to run off into the wilderness and flee for his life. As David writes this psalm, there is literally an army after him trying to capture him, imprison him, and kill him. He is afraid, and he's searching He's searching for peace, and this is what he says. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Now, this psalm may seem a little bit divorced from reality because most of you in here, I hope, do not have armies chasing you down trying to kill you today. And yet, and yet, in this psalm, we learn about how to face our fears, how to have peace in the midst of fears the world wants to use to hold us back. David is not being hyperbolic here. He's not inflating his situation. He is facing some really big trouble, and we can learn from him. First of all, we learn victory over fear requires honesty about our situation. This, this is huge. Do you, because David is, is facing something really real, really tangible. And, and he doesn't try to ignore it. He doesn't try to sort of shift it to the back of his mind. He doesn't decide to kind of just be, well, I'm just going to be po power of positive thinking. Tens of thousands of people are trying to kill me. But you know what? God is good. No, it's not David here. He gets honest about what he's really facing. And, and, he's, and he's praying for peace in the midst of it. He's looking for peace. It says in verse 5, I lie down and sleep. See, towards the end of this psalm, David gets to the place where he can actually lie down and sleep. How many of you find that when you're afraid of something, when fear or worry or anxiety is sort of plaguing you about a situation or something that's happening, the time when it most becomes alive and starts to ping around your brain is when you lay down and try to go to sleep. How many of you have ever been kept up at night because... Of fear. Yeah, and that's David here. He's, he's just plagued with fear, and yet by the end of this psalm, he has found so much peace that he can actually lie down and sleep. And here's where David's pursuit of peace begins. It starts with just being honest about what he's facing. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Now, notice the exclamation points here. These aren't questions. This isn't David saying, God, how many are after me? How many are my foes? No, he's saying, Lord, do you see how great my foes are? Do you see how many are after me? In, ver in verse 6, he says, tens of thousands are coming after me. David has great reason to be afraid in this passage. And he seeks peace. He wants peace in the midst of this fear. There's nothing he can do. He can't solve it. There's no easy fix to this situation. And yet, in the midst of this thing that's bringing terror into his life, he's longing for peace, and he's searching for a kind of peace. It's the same kind of peace, actually, that Jesus talks about in John 14. 
Because in John 14, Jesus is about to die. He's about to go to the cross. And then he'll go to the grave. And then he'll rise from the grave. And then he will ascend to his Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is about to leave his disciples. And he's leaving his disciples to face a lot of hard stuff. Jesus knows it's not going to get easier for them. It's going to get harder for them. In other, in other words, he knows there are things ahead for you guys to be afraid of that are going to produce fear in you. And so Jesus says to them, this is John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. There's lots to be afraid of in this world. There's lots for you guys to be afraid of down the road. And yet, I want to offer you peace amidst the fear. Don't be afraid. And, and Jesus distinguishes here between the kind of peace he gives and the kind of peace that the world offers. He says, they're not the same thing. The world will try and offer you peace, and I'm going to offer you peace, but they are not the same. And and. The peace Jesus offers is the same peace that David's after in our passage today. Because in the face of fear, friends, in the face of tough, difficult circumstances, the world offers peace in one of two ways. And, and you're going to notice this this week. Now that I've said it, you're going to pick this up when you talk to people in the world and when you read things in the world. The world will say, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. We want to offer you peace. You can either have peace through ignorance or optimism. Either just don't think about it. Try not to like let your mind spin around it. You know, sure, things could go really bad, but just don't worry. Just don't consider all the dangers. Don't consider all the risks. Don't think about it. Don't ruminate on the fact that a giant earthquake could come at any moment and scientists are telling us it's true. Just try and put it out of your mind, right? You're like, I thought this was going to make me feel better today, Pastor Dave. That's one approach, though. Ignorance is bliss. You can have peace through ignorance. That's one of the ways the world offers peace. The other way is be optimistic. Just think positively. It probably won't happen. The odds are on your side. You know, get prepared. You can handle it. It's going to be okay. You see, worldly peace is all about circumstances, about being optimistic about circumstances or ignoring circumstances if they're dire Ignoring them or being positive about them. Let me make this personal. I'll make this more personal. And this will serve as both a sermon illustration and a prayer request for me. Okay? Ready? In one week from this Tuesday, I'm having a hip replacement. And I know it's really sad, isn't it? Uh, and some of you are thinking to yourself, what, Pastor Dave? You're way too young. How can a person in their 30s have a hip replacement? <laughs> Well, you're right on one of those counts. Uh, I'm, I'm having a hip replacement because ultimately it's my dad's fault. He has two false hips, and I played a lot of basketball in my life. And the last time I went to the doctor and they took x-rays, he came in and he said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is your right hip looks great. The bad news is your left hip looks like you're 75. And I said, okay. So it's been about a year of just uncomfortableness and pain, and so I'm going ahead and I'm getting it done. Um, someone said to me earlier this month when I told them, they said, well, I suppose this is the end of the MBA dream then, huh? 
And I said, what are you talking about? This is to keep the NBA dream alive. Like, that's right. The Blazers are, what was that? From the couch, Gary, come on. Be an optimist. That's hurtful, Gary. We'll talk later. No. So I'm doing this thing. I'm having this hip replacement, and it's happening in nine days. So Friday, last Friday, I went into the doctor's office for my pre-op appointment. And when you go in for a pre-op appointment, they do two things. One, they tell you about all the stuff that could go wrong. In fact, they give you lists of all the ways that things could go tragically wrong and that you might die. And then you have to sign a sheet that says, thanks for telling me how you might kill me, right? You get a blood clot, you could lose too much blood, you know, the anesthesia could go bad, all sorts of things that can go terribly wrong. Sign right here. And then they do the second thing. They say, so, how are you feeling about the procedure? And, and you think to yourself, well, I was feeling good until you told me about all the ways that I could die, and now I'm not feeling as well. Um, and then they try and kind of give you peace amidst the fear. They say, oh, there's nothing to really worry about. Now, one of the problems for me is that I, I did this thing. I went online and watched the surgery. <laughs> Rookie mistake, right? And I won't, I'll spare you the details because some of you couldn't handle it, but, but I thought we'd kind of made some strides in modern medicine, but let's just say this procedure involves saws and hammers and drills. It looks like something a caveman would do. And so I'm thinking, that's what you're going to do to me? And so they say, hey, don't worry, don't worry. And then they offer me two ways to find peace amidst my fear. They say, just try not to think about what's going to happen. You're going to be asleep anyway. Just put it out of your mind. Don't think about it, right? Just be ignorant to the fact that they're going to like saw off the top of your femur bone. Don't worry about it, right? And then the other thing they say is, Oh, here's another way to have peace. Be optimistic. All the stats are on your side. You're young. You're healthy. Like, the chances that something could go wrong are so minor. This is going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful, right? Ignorance or optimism. That's what they offer you. And this is what Jesus would call world-given peace. It's don't think about it and hope for the best. And friends, that's not bad advice. I'm trying not to think about it. And I'm trying to be optimistic, absolutely. But there is a deeper peace that God offers us as we face our fear. Because sometimes things will go bad. And actually, eventually in your lifetime, eventually in this world, things will go bad. It's a hundred percent. So something's going bad at some point. It's just a matter of time. But the peace that Jesus offers us in the face of fear is different. It's a peace that's not dependent on circumstances. It's peace that doesn't count on things not going bad. A woman from our church heard that I was having this done, and she dropped by the office to encourage me. I think encourage me. I wasn't sure. But she gave me this card. It's kind of you know, made me worry a little bit, kind of up to the fear game in me. Um, but it did remind me of this. It reminded me that, yeah, I want things to go well, and yes, I'm optimistic, but that no matter what happens, 
If I wake up and they accidentally put my leg on backwards, if I wake up and they weren't able to reattach my leg, or even if I don't even wake up at all, God of the, God of the universe has got me and he will get me through it no matter what. You see, that is godly peace. Jesus says, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. This is not optimism or ignorance. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid because no matter what, I've got you. Now, I'll just say this as a quick aside. Sometimes we take the words of Jesus and we use them just to slap a Christian sticker on ignorance. Oh, God's got me. I can just be ignorant about what's happening. No. Or we take a Christian sticker and we slap it on optimism. God's got me. Everything's going to be great. Nothing will ever go wrong. No, no, no. No matter what happens, God has got me because it could go well and it may not. That's how it goes in this world. And that's the kind of peace that David's after here. He's not ignoring the situation. He's not just being optimistic. Tens of thousands are trying to kill me, but it's going to be great. No, he's being honest about the hard facts, and he's leaning in to this truth. The God of the universe is with me no matter what. And so in the midst of this fear, this very real fear, I can have peace. Victory over fear requires honesty about our situation. Second, it reveals and relocates our glory. David says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory. You see, we learn here in verse 2 that it's not just David's life that's being threatened. It's also his reputation. He's saying, I'm afraid because people are trying to kill me. That's real. That's legit. But he's saying, but I'm also afraid. I'm also afraid because my moral record is being questioned. I'm losing my family's love. The approval of my people has gone away. My political power has vanished. The fact that I'm a beloved king and have been a beloved king, that reality is no more. These things are all being threatened. And to take these things away scares me. Because I've located my glory in them. I've found too much glory. I've put too much weight on them. That's what the word glory means in the Old Testament. It just means weight. It's about what has the most weight in your life. Where's your glory? What has the most weight in your life? The most significance to you. And David says, there's some things in my life that have just gotten too weighty. And now they're being threatened. And so... I am afraid. He's confessing that, friends. He's, he's confessing that he had a lot of significance wrapped up in his position and what people thought of him. Can anyone relate? He, he found a lot of comfort and a lot of security in those things, in being the king and in being beloved. People used to talk about him. They used to praise him. They used to sing songs about how great he was. But now they're saying, no, we don't even think God is on his side anymore. Friend, friends, here's the truth. Here's the power of fear. It'll show you something about yourself. Because fear comes when something we put weight in gets threatened. Fear shows up when something we find glory in or safety in or security in or identity in gets threatened. The summer before my senior year in college, we were out on the lake, a bunch of friends 
uh, and myself, and I jumped off the back of a jet ski and landed in the water just in the right way that it caught my foot and just, boonk, popped the medial, the MCL, medial cruci... Help me out, doctors. There's a ligament in there on the inside of your knee. You got it. Okay. Just popped it. Boom. Instantly. And as soon as I hit the water, it just popped, and I knew it had happened. And it was about three days before I could get to the doctor, and for those three days, I was certain that I had just lost my senior year in college basketball season. And I was devastated. I was absolutely just terrified of the fact that I was going to lose this my last year, my senior year, playing basketball. And, um, and I was so down. My friends were coming to me saying, we have never seen you this distraught. We've never seen you this sad and this low. Um, and, and I just was. Well, I, I ended up going to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, hey, good luck. The good news is, is that your MCL heals a little different than your ACL, so you'll be back in six weeks. So I got my season back. But what that moment revealed to me was that I had found a lot more glory. I'd put a lot more weight. I found a lot more significance and identity and security in being a basketball player on that campus than I realized. And the fear is what revealed it. The fear revealed, man, this is a weightier thing in your life than you thought it was. You find more glory in this than you thought you did. Because where there is fear, there is glory. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad. Sometimes it's good. to have, so There's weighty things in your life. Your chi- if you're a parent out there, your children are weighty things. They're, they should be weighty things in your life. Now, they shouldn't be weightier than God, right? Justice and, like, fighting oppression in this world, like, righting wrongs, that should be a weighty thing for you if you're a follower of Jesus. There are things that should be weighty. To, to have something weighty in your life is not a bad thing, but you have to ask yourself, is, is this too weighty? Is it carried too, do I have too much glory, too much identity wrapped up in this thing? And what David is doing in this passage is that he's looking at his reputation and he's saying, wow, I had a lot more weight. I had a lot more significance wrapped up in that than I thought, more than I should have. And now that it's been taken away, now that it's been threatened, I am terrified. I don't know who I am. I've got to get my scales put back together in the right way. See, all of us have things that are weighty, and when they're threatened, we get scared. If you are afraid you won't have money, it's because on some level, you're finding your security in your savings account. You put too much weight in it. When when you're afraid your looks are going away, it's because you find identity in how you look in the mirror. When you're afraid you won't get married, it's because... That relationship and that sense of security and fulfillment and success from having a partner, a marriage partner, that is a real weighty thing for you. It's really significant. When you live in fear over a disease or a condition or a potential virus, health is something you put a lot of weight in. You see, behind your fear is always something of value in your life. It's a good thing to have children. It's a good thing to take care of them. But if all your glory, if all your weight, if all your significance is wrapped up in them, then you're in big trouble, friends, because kids and looks and money are all finite things, and they're all going away at some point, and they are all very vulnerable in this world. And when you have too much weight and finite vulnerable things, you're going to live in fear because they are always being threatened. 
You see, when you have too much weight in finite things, you will live in fear because finite things are always being threatened. And in this prayer, David realizes that this is what he's done. He's put all his glory and his weight and his significance and his security and his position and his reputation. And maybe for a long time, he told himself, you know, I don't care that much what people think of me. You know, I'm not really defined by being the king. But now, now that it's gone, now that it's threatened, fear has told him that it was actually more meaningful to him than he thought. And he says in this prayer, I need to relocate my glory. I need to shift some weight back into a different category. I need to glory in someone who is eternal and dependable and beyond the threat of circumstances in this world. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. My, my reputation is changed. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory. I need to put more weight in you. I can find peace and safety and security even in this, this fallen, broken, threatening world because you, God, will never change. You, Lord, you need to be the weightiest thing in my life again. Let me ask you, friends. Just think about it. It's just a great exercise. What is the thing on the other side of your fear that's being threatened? Think about where you experience fear or worry or anxiousness in your life. And what's the thing on the other side of that that's being threatened? And have you appropriately weighted that thing in your life? Has that thing become more weighty, more defining, more significant than God? Or is God still the weightiest thing in your mind and heart? You see, to have victory, fear reveals and then relocates our glory, shifts the weight back towards the Lord in our life so that we can have peace. Okay, here's the last thing that David offers us today about finding victory over fear. He says... To find victory over fear, we must rely on God's love, not our own effort. How many, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? See, David's realistic. He sees the real situation. This is not ignorance or optimism. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory. See, God, I put too much weight in my reputation, but now I'm shifting it back to you. And then he says this, the one who lifts my head high. The one who lifts my head high. What's he saying here? He's saying, I'm putting my, my glory, I'm putting the weight back on you, God, in my life. I'm letting you, the weight of you in my life, shift my mindset, shift my perspective. Give me peace, even when the world says to be terrified. And what's he saying when he says, the one who lifts my head high? Well, what does it mean to lift your head high? It means to be proud. Right? It means to be confident. I think in my son's basketball team, you know, even when they would lose, especially actually when they would lose, the coach would gather all these boys, these seventh grade boys, and they would all be bummed. They lost their game, and he would gather them all together after the game, and he'd talk to them about what went well, what didn't go well, and he'd always say something to this effect, especially when they got really beat bad and they were really demoralized. Hey, you guys played hard. You learned a lot. You gave your best effort. I'm really proud of you. I want you to walk out of here with your heads held high, right? Why? A lifter of your head is somebody who's saying what? I'm proud of you. 
I know it didn't go the way you wanted, but I'm still proud of you. I adore you. I love you. I think you're great. In spite of how the game went, in spite of how your life went, in spite of what's happening in your life and around the world, I still love you and adore you. You see, that's what David says. David says, that's how you still feel about me, God. Even though I'm in this mess, even though I'm in this terrible situation, even though I brought a lot of it on myself, you still lift my head high. You still love me. You're still proud of me. You still adore me. And how does David know that God feels this way about him? I mean, think about that for a minute. David in this prayer says, God, I know that you still love me. And yet, people have turned against David for some good reasons. Like, he's on the outs because of his own doing. I mean, he, at, at, at the lowest point, slept with his good buddy's wife and then tried to conceal it by having his good buddy killed. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, he's failed as a father. He's failed as a king. He's failed as a human being. He's failed as a friend. He's failed in pretty much every way you can. But here he says to God, I know you still love me and you're proud of me. What? How would you know that? How do you know that? How could you say that? After all that you've done, David, you think God still loves you and is proud of you? Well, in this next verse, he tells us how he knows this. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. What's on that holy mountain? What's he talking about here? He's talking about the tabernacle. The place of worship that's built up on that holy mountain. The place where sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. The, people, the place where people went to say, hey, I, I didn't live up. I didn't, I didn't do enough. I, I blew it. I messed up. But God, through these sacrifices, you can still love me. You can still forgive me. You, we can still be in relationship. I can still be your son or your daughter. You see, David finally gets to this place where he rejects the idea that he has somehow earned God's favor. That by being good enough or smart enough or doing enough good things or not enough bad things, God will love him and accept him and be proud of him. You see, what David's complete and utter failure has driven him into is this truth. God, I am completely dependent on your love and grace. It's not dependent on me. It's 100% dependent on you. How you feel about me has nothing to do with what I do for you. You just love me unconditionally. You see, what David is speaking out against here in this passage is what we would call religion. This desire and this sense that we have that we have to somehow be good enough for God and earn his favor and earn his love and earn his pride. David finally says, what I'm realizing is that I can't. I can't live up, and yet, God, you still love me, not because of me, but because of you. That's how I have ultimate peace in life. I have peace in your love because your love doesn't depend even on me. It doesn't depend on the circumstances of my life. It doesn't even depend on my attitudes and actions and behaviors. Even when I blow it, even when I blow it royally, God, you still lift my head up high. Let me ask you, friends, what gives you ultimate peace in life? What creates ultimate identity and security and peace for you in this broken, fallen world where we're all headed towards the grave? Is it that you're a good Christian? 
Is that you're really a good religious Christian person and that you, you know, you're doing all the right things and you're doing less of the wrong things and you're showing up to church regularly and so because you're this good Christian person, God loves you and accepts you and that's where your peace. Is it still built on your performance? Is it still built on your works? Because let me tell you, friends, that's a teetering place to live. And the Bible says it just doesn't work. In fact, the Bible says it's not just David who doesn't live up. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the best of us. Even the most righteous of us. Even those of us who show up to church six days a week. Like me. I love to say that, by the way. Someone's been in church a lot. If something goes well, I say, someone's been in church a lot, right? Like, as if that matters to God in any way. As if his approval to me is dependent on my behavior or my attendance at church or the things I do. No, he loves me unconditionally and his unconditional love should now shape my behavior. But, but his love for me, his approval of me is not shaped by my attitude and actions. If it's built on that, then it's really teetering. David finally understands this. He finally understands that salvation and hope and peace in the midst of fallenness and brokenness in this world ultimately comes from God and his great love for us through the sacrifice of his only son for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now David, he doesn't know that's how it's going to happen, but he knows that God uses sacrifice in order to cleanse him and make him right before his heavenly father. We have the advantage of being on this side of the cross to see that God has ultimately done this through his son. That's the good news. That God loves us, what the Bible calls, perfectly. That perfect love, the perfect love, is actually what frees us from fear. You were right, Michelle. And if you know this is, you, you know this is perfect love because it's from God. You see, this is what it says in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. How do you get perfect love? You know what perfect love is? Someone who would love you no matter what. No matter what you would say, no matter what you would do, no matter what you wouldn't do. No, there's nothing you could do that would separate you from their love. That's perfect love. And that perfect, that perfect love would have to come from a perfect being. And so we get perfect love from a perfect God who says, no matter what you do, I love you. Why? Because I gave my son. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that I can love you even when you royally blow it. You are so loved. You are so you're loved beyond what you could ever imagine. There's nothing that you can do, Paul says, to separate yourself from the love of God. You know that whole chapter in Romans 8? If you read that chapter again, you should read it like in all caps because it's almost as if Paul is shouting it. There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. Like, what are you afraid of in this world? You've got the biggest safety net you could possibly imagine. It's the love of your heavenly father. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what you do, no matter what goes wrong, God loves you. The God of the universe loves you and he saved you and he's redeemed you. What are you afraid of, church? That's Paul in Romans 8. That's Romans 8 in a, in a few sentences right there. Right? And that's why we gather. 
We gather to remember that truth so we can go back into the, out into this terrifying world with confidence, not with ignorance, not with optimism, not ignoring the things in this world that are scary, but with confidence to face them because our God is on our side. And that's why we come to these tables. These tables are a meal that reminds us of that fact. It's fuel for you to face your fears. It's like taking the love of God. God loved me this much that he gave his son, that he shed his blood, he loved me this much. The God of the universe loves me more than I can imagine. And now that thing that I'm afraid of for my kid or at work or that thing that terrifies me that the doctor told me or that little procedure I'm going to have next week, it doesn't seem that scary anymore because the love of my God is enormous. So church, this morning, I invite you to come again and share this meal and make that declaration. Not in ignorance, not in optimism. Be real honest about what you're facing and bring it to God and let God reveal to you what it is that's weighty in your life, what's, what's significant to you. Let him do some shifting. Let him, let him shift that weight around so that he becomes heavier and bigger and more of the source of your glory. And then remember today that you walk out of here more loved than you could ever imagine, not because you're a good person, but because you serve a great God. I'm going to pray, and the tables will be open. Come, take the elements whenever you're ready. Father, this morning, we just acknowledge that this is a scary world. It's broken, and there are things out there that are scary and terrifying. And we need you, Lord. We need you to move us to action to right those wrongs, to step into places where we can partner with you, to, to make this world right, Lord, and in the places where that's not an easy fix, that you would give us confidence and courage and peace because of your great love for us, because you loved us more than we could ever imagine. That's our prayer. We thank you for it, and we worship you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.